Hi everybody, Wynn Claybaugh here, and welcome to this issue of Masters, which I know is going to be a little loud compared to what we're normally used to, but we're in a very, very busy place, which uh, we'll share with you why we're in this incredible place. But I'm sitting here with a, a wonderful man that I was introduced to a couple of months ago, but of course I've known about him for many, many years and have followed the work that he does and the causes that he supports and... We have so much to learn from him in so many ways. So before we get started, I just want to welcome to Masters, Father Greg Boyle. So welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. First of all, we're sitting in this very, very busy place. Can you tell us where we're sitting and why it's so loud out there? What's going on here? Well, um, we're sitting in my office uh, here at Homeboy Industries, which is the largest gang intervention rehab reentry program on the planet. So... Uh, 15,000 folks a year walk through our doors trying to reimagine their lives, redirect their lives. So that uh, accounts for the relative noise and all the people out there. It's also nice to be in your office right now. I wish we had a visual of this with all the, the, the photos. And right behind you is a photo of a beautiful man with his baby says, love you. And you have a, a lot to be proud of. This legacy that you are building and, and creating is something that just must give you so much joy and so much purpose. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I don't have any control over my office anymore. I have, there's a homie who I, I think has taken it upon himself to curate this place. So he'll <laughs> put up photographs. I mean, it, all these are gifts from people. So there's a kind of a storehouse of, and they get changed every once in a while. But a lot of babies, a lot of uh, homies. You could never move. How would you move all of this? Yeah, right? I don't know what. It's a, a museum piece now. Well, I'm going to read a little bit here so our audience knows more about who you are. You are, again, as you said, the largest gang intervention, rehabilitation, and reentry program in the world. And I like the fact that even though you're based here in Los Angeles, the work that you do is worldwide to teach other communities on how to establish this, on how to create this. You are from Los Angeles area, correct? Yeah, I was born and raised here. And you've been a, a priest since 1984. That's correct. Did you know back then that this would be your calling? Did you know back then that, because you were originally assigned to one of the poorest communities in this Los Angeles area, was that by, by choice? Did you request that or did you know that that was going to be your, your mission? Actually, I did ask to do that because uh, I had been in Bolivia, which kind of introduced me to the poor and the folks on the margins, and so that's what I wanted to do. And then uh, I got sick, I had to come home, and then, anyway, I, I asked to come to uh, the poorest place we had, which was Dolores Mission Church in the middle of the housing project. So it turned out they had eight gangs at war with each other, which is not very typical in two public housing projects. So the LAPD called it the largest grouping of public housing west of the Mississippi. So I started to bury kids. So so it was one of those that you you know you just kind of fall into it, and we evolved as a program you know based on that, and then just responded to things as they came. So that was during the what I call the decade of death, which was eighty eight to ninety eight when. You know, in, right in the middle of that, uh, 1992, the county, we had a thousand gang-related homicides. So we've, you know, we've cut that in half and then in half again since then. But that was the peak. That was the height of the violence, shootings, morning, noon, and night. You were young. What was your first experience and exposure to 
Uh, you said that there were eight gangs in that area. What was your first exposure to that? You said you started burying kids and... Well, in, in 1988, I buried my first young person. I've buried 231 since. So because you couldn't ignore it, you couldn't just say, well, we're going to just concentrate on church on Sundays or something. Mm-hmm. It started to become the thing. And, of course, in those days, gangs were more indigenous, you know. Gang members lived in the territory that they claimed. It's less true now. It's kind of almost more of a commuter reality. But in those days, they lived in their turf. I know you're really not into your bio and the accolades and the awards that you've received, but just by by mention, you have three books out, correct? Two books. Two books called Barking to the Choir, which I love that title, Barking to the Choir. Mm -hmm. What what is (laughs) Where'd you come up with that title, by the way? Oh, that was my second book, and that was uh, because in this office, uh, a homie who worked in the bakery came in, and people had already told me he was late and had a bad attitude and was missing, and he was starting to unravel a little bit. And so I was kind of, he was standing right in front of my desk where you are, and I was kind of running it down to him, saying, you know, bringing this to his attention, he he finally interrupted me and he says, relax, you're barking to the choir. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's the name of my next book, <laughs> no matter what. So the full title is Barking to the Choir, The Power of Radical Kinship. The first book is called Tattoos on the Heart, The Power of Boundless Compassion. I was fortunate enough to have you speak at one of my events last May. So eight, eight months ago or so, and just such a, a profound impact that you had. And I didn't get a chance to talk to you after that. I mean, you spoke and then you, you disappeared. You vaporized. All of a sudden you were gone, which I thought was pretty clever. I want to learn how you do that. <laughs> but what happened, though, is after you left, of course, nobody could speak. And then once they could compose themselves to realize or to be able to verbalize what had just happened to that audience because of your message and your impact... Then it was like, well, he's gone. What are we going to do? We have to do something. And then the next day, of course, they passed the plates and $30,000 later, mm-hmm. you have that impact on people because of the message that you deliver. I've always said that the best teachers, the best mentors, the best heroes, the best change makers are storytellers. You're a storyteller. And the stories that you have are just so, so profound. When did storytelling become a part of the mission, so to speak? Well, I... Early on, I knew that the way to kind of connect to gang members was by, you know, visiting them locked up. And so in those days, we had 25 different detention facilities. There are fewer now, thank goodness. But in those days, as a priest, I would visit them and say Mass. And so you give a homily of 7 to 10 minutes, and I always had three stories gleaned from, you know, riding my bike in the middle of the night and in the housing projects. So they were all stories about gang members because I felt like they were stories that my audience would connect with. Hmm. So then I had a storehouse of so many stories, people said, gosh, you should write a book. So maybe at some point I thought maybe I would write homilies, you know, to put the three stories. But then I threw that out. And so I just wrote these books, which are kind of more essays, and each chapter had a kind of a thematic notion, and then I'd, I just have a storehouse of stories. So 
two books full. The thing with stories is, you know, anytime with an audience, you want to get them to laugh, you want to get them to think and move beyond the mind they have, and you want to get them to cry. Hmm. And so if you do all those things, you know, you don't want to do uh, just one of those things or even two of those things. All three. All three is kind of uh, key. No matter how much time you're given, you know, if you're given 10 minutes or an hour, you know. The, the message that you delivered with my group, which I guess was an hour, and you absolutely did those three things. Coming over here, several people knowing that I was going to be interviewing you, saying, oh, my God, you're so lucky. Oh, I love Father Greg. I love a priest who drops the F-bomb. <laughs> I hope I'm okay to say I, that. I don't do it deliberately, but <laughs> I, I always do it as uh, Part of the story. All, all my stories. You know, I didn't say it. That kid said it. <laughs> you're just repeating the and story. I'm just repeating it. Yeah. Well, again, lo- love the stories. My underlying message, or what I know I'm going to get out of this, is in asking you to deliver a message to the corporate world. Yeah, I work a lot in the nonprofit world, and there's several charitable organizations and causes, including yours, that I'm passionate about. But I also work a lot in the corporate world. I run my own corporation, but and I speak to other corporations. And just being able to deliver the message that if you live in a community, I think is what you said, it wasn't just about church on Sunday. It was about what are we going to do outside of the building to make a difference? And, and I think businesses need to have that same message, too. You can't just uh, be a consumer in that community. You can't just be take, 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 buy my goods, buy my services, and not turn around and give back. And, and I, I, I'm looking to you for that message. I know that's a lot of corporations that follow you and that support homeboy industries and and i think that that message needs to go out there even more on the responsibility that we have as businesses to make a difference in our communities yeah you know i I try to turn things on its head a little bit you know because even the notion of make a difference you know ought we to go to the margins to make a difference or should we go to the margins so that the folks at the margins make us different then all of a sudden you turn the thing on its head which is kind of the hope. You know, Homeboy wants to be the, the front porch of the house everybody longs to live in. So, you know, it's a place of kinship and connection. Everybody belongs. There is no us and them. If you look at the place, you know, it's filled with, you know, different races. And any single gang member here has multiple, multiple enemies and rivals. People they used to shoot at, they're now making croissants with so that's the kind of the micro level the macro level is an invitation you know what if we were to invest in people rather than incarcerate our way out of our problems you talk about living on the margins here and i've heard you say i have so many quotes from you sometimes we'll be lucky enough to stand with the easily hated the easily despised and the readily left out yeah. So I you know that's kind of I think where you need to gravitate, you know. It's about standing with the demonized so that the demonizing will stop and you stand with the disposable so that the day will come when we stop throwing people away. And part of that is to stand with the easily despised and the readily left out and you see that as a privilege, a, a great gift to be able to do that, you know. How has it changed your life? And when you entered 
the ministry, was it your attitude that I'm here to save them and to fix them? Oh yeah, definitely. And and people burn out because it's about them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's about me wanting to save or even make a difference. That leads to burnout. And how and when did that start to change for you? I, I you know, I very specific. It's like six years in when I was starting to, you know, burn out and didn't sleep and on my bike in the middle of the night and housing projects. You know, I had this experience of a of a guy named Lulu, and um, you know, he was a gang member, drug addict. Well, he was a drug dealer until he started to become his own best customer. And he was selling drugs, and then he was getting high, and then all of a sudden, you know, I said, hey, you need help, and finally he agreed. So I drove him to a mountaintop, a rehab, and 30 days later, his younger brother, also a gang member and, and drug addict, did what gang members rarely ever do. He put a gun to his head and killed himself. Gang members are more likely to walk into harm's way and hope to die. So I called Lulu, told him about it. He was devastated. And I said, well, I'm going to pick you up and bring you to the funeral, but I want to bring you right back to the rehab. He goes, I want you to because I like how this feels. So I, I went in, I picked him up and big, uh, you know, hug, and he gets in the car and he launches into a, a story about a dream he had had the night before. And in the dream, he and I were in this large room, but it was pitch black, no illuminated exit signs, no light creeping under the door, absolutely, totally pitch black. But he knows somehow that I'm in the room with him, though we're silent. And then in the silence and in the darkness, I have a flashlight and I aim it at the light switch. But again, I don't say a word and he says, I know... I'm the only one who can turn that light switch on. I'm really happy that you happen to have a flashlight. So he follows the beam of light, which I'm holding steadily on the light switch. He gets to the light switch. He takes a deep sigh. He flips the light on, and the room is flooded with light. And now he's sobbing in the telling of the story. And he says, with this voice of incredible discovery, the light is better than the darkness like he didn't know that to be the case and he said I guess my brother just never found the light switch well I've never had a moment like that in my life where in an instant it just changed I changed how I lived I thought oh I've been trying to turn the light switch on for people no you can't do that own a flashlight know where to aim it that has to be enough for you. And then suddenly it was. And so I've never been even near burnout since that moment. Just because I just turned the whole thing on its head. I just did it differently. Then it's not about me. It's about, you know, holding the flashlight. So I, I kind of have a hairy eyeball when it comes to... Uh, you know, self-care, or when people say, oh my gosh, I guess I, I'm just so compassionate. This is so hard. This work is so hard to do. I go, no, you're doing it wrong. It's about you. Don't let it become about you. But the minute it's other-centered, you're halfway there. 
that the moment it becomes loving centered, that you love being loving, well then it's you'll never burn out. It's eternally replenishing. Will always be. Well, based on that message, what's the advice that you give then to a corporation? Because when a corporation does fundraising, obviously they want the press for it, which I think is great because then it inspires other people to become donors and, and contributors and volunteers. But how does a, a business make it not about them and more about, as you say, fl- putting that flashlight onto the light? I don't know. You know, it's like uh, <laughs> corporation or people, too. Is that how that goes? I mean, I just buried a kid who died of an overdose. And I've known him for 33 years. But for all his struggles, he knew what that self-absorbed person will be stuck in sadness. But an other-centered person finds happiness. But a loving-centric person knows what real joy is. So that's the kind of the gradation that I think makes sense around here. And that's the idea, you know. And for all his struggle, he kind of, this kid knew that. He was just a joyful person. Now, he had other struggles besides, you know, obviously. But he kind of had that secret, which, you know, I think is remarkable. But that's the key to... uh, keeping burnout at bay, you know. But I kind of don't tolerate it around here too much, you know. Once I had a homie who was a navigator was saying, I I just think I'm just too compassionate. I go, no, you don't, you know, because it, it just means you've fallen for it. You know, the notion that you're there to save people, rescue people, fix people. Nope. Can you delight in them? Can you receive them? I remember a guy... I think I might have mentioned this in in my talk with you guys, but for me it's always been the image of a guy in Houston who works with gang members, who a former gang member himself, and he says, how do you reach them? Meaning gang members. And, and I found myself saying, well, for starters, stop trying to reach them. You know, Can you be reached by them? Well, suddenly you've turned it on its head. Now, can that work for a corporation? You know, corporations that you know, allow themselves to be reached by the poor, by those on the margins, by the easily despised, by the readily left out. How do corporations allow themselves to be reached? Their presumption is we're so resource heavy that only the poor and the folks on the margins will benefit from our largesse. Yeah, not so much. You know, how do you allow yourself to be reached? I remember another young woman in Chicago, a senior in, at a university, and, I, you know, I was talking about the margins, going to the margins, that that's where the joy is. And she said, I'm afraid to go to the margins. And I said, why? And she said, I'm afraid I won't fit in. And then I found myself saying to her, if it's about you, you'll always be afraid. And I don't even know how that frog kind of leapt out of my mouth. But but I thought, no, I think that's true. I think that's the source of fear, is when you've allowed it to become about you, that's what's going to happen. You travel quite a bit, and I know that you travel oftentimes with your homies. 
you bring them on the road with you and for some of them I'm sure it's the first time that they've been on a plane or or even left the the neighborhood correct mm-hmm. tell some of the stories and I've heard many of them some of the stories of of giving them that stage of of putting them in front of uh, huge audiences to transform that audience with their incredible beautiful raw messages so I don't want to tell a story that I know you've already heard. Oh, I, don't, I have a huge, huge audience here, and I can <laughs> yeah, hear your stories. But, but As I, I go into a concert with your favorite band and they don't play your favorite song, <laughs> I want you to tell me the, my yeah, favorite stories. But, I, but I, it's sort of against my religion to tell somebody a, a repeat my story. But, you know, th- there was kind of a new one, I guess, you know, because I do it so often. And I had two guys, African-American and Latino, and they were enemies. They used to shoot at each other. And uh, so we're in the car together, going to LAX, and they're silent. I think, oh my God, this is going to be a long trip. And then one of them, uh, Jose, was, uh, we were lined up, you know, it was Southwest Airlines, you know, so it's, you know, the A-listers, which I am, just because I fly so much. And they were kind of in the next thing, and and Jose has sort of a loud-ass voice. And Jose goes, A-G, and everybody turns and looks, and oh my God. Can I turn my phone to airplane mode? And I, you know, I'm trying to quiet them down. I go, well, you know, you can still use your phone right now, and even on the plane, you can use it until they close the doors. Then you have to turn your phone to airplane mode. And he turns to a total stranger, a woman. He goes, "I've never done airplane mode before." Well, he was so exhilarated, and she kind of looks at him like, "Oh, great," you know, and. And I always thought, well, he's sort of inviting us to the infinite uh, now, you know, to kind of be delighted in the present moment, and I, and I like that. So then we gave, we gave six talks in Chicago. And I remember, I'm an introvert, so I, I, you know, I need my space. So I, at one point I said, hey, let me drop you off at Navy Pier. They have a lot of stores. You can buy stuff for your women folk and your kids, you know. Well, they go to this thing called Build a Teddy, where you build a teddy bear, and and you can kind of specify it or something and what they're wearing. And then you can record your voice. And so he, so they came back to me, and they both did this. And Jose said, I bought this for my lady. What are you thinking? And you push the paw, and the voice comes out, and it's his voice that he's recorded. And it says, I love you with all my heart, baby. Come here, give me a kiss. That's what he recorded. Do you think she'll like it? I go, oh my God, she'll love it, you know. And so, so the next day we're leaving, and so they they buy too much crap, and it's hard to. And he's trying to zip it into his bag every two minutes. The bear is going <laughs> off. I love you with all my heart, baby. TSA, I love you with all my heart, baby. He's shoving it in the overhead compartment. Come here, give me a kiss. We're dying laughing. So then. We're driving from LAX back to Homeboy, and Jose's in the back seat, and he says, you know what my favorite part of this whole trip was? And I said, no, what? And he pats Larry, the African-American, on the arm, and he says, being with him. So they had these, you know, whatever it was, three and a half days, it was a long trip relative to what I normally do. And they were moments, you know, to kind of, you can't demonize people you know. And so they shared a, a hotel room, you know, and they told their stories in front of each other, in front of big audiences. 
stories of terror and torture and violence and abuse and and they found their kind of common connection in their torturous stories and so it was really beautiful to behold you know so homeboy trains says more than 300 former gang members every year but you said that 12,000 people a year are walking through the doors yeah yeah so some are in the 18 month training program and others are here for classes tattoo removal therapy NAAA or they're in the shoot you know they're in the process which takes some time drug testing orientation selection committee and to be one of those 300 what are the qualifications well you know <clears throat> for the guys you have to kind of you have to be a gang member so uh, but you know women they'll say they're 5 to 10 percent but the truth is they're closer to 3 percent you know and uh, so we've expanded the definition you know of the females who can come in here you know you have to be a felon because if we said you have to be a gang member we'd never we wouldn't be able to have enough females in here okay and you said the process for them is 18 months and during those 18 months they're employed they're they're they're, also going through the classes yeah it's a paid gig so they'll come in and they'll get something they, you know, have what we call kinship grants, which is when they're in therapy and classes, so they get paid for that. And then the other one is just clock in and work and train in one of our nine social enterprises. Hmm. I'm curious to know, because you serve women as well, I'm curious to know what happens with their children. How are their children taken into consideration while they're going through this process and stories that you have about that or advice that you have about that? Well, you know, a great many of them have had their kids taken away. So they, you know, just unspeakable pain about, you know, that kind of part of their lives. Right. So they're kind of working their way back. You know, at every morning meeting during the announcements time, you know, you're always getting somebody saying, I got my kids back yesterday and people are sobbing and mm-hmm. clapping. and So it's quite wonderful. But they've all had hiccups, you know, they've all been to prison, they've all had real difficulties, and so, you know, this place helps them reunite with their kids and within their lives, and so it's all restorative all around. But, you know, you break a cycle, you know, they, they come here and this is kind of a sanctuary, and then they become the sanctuary that they sought, and then they go home and they present that sanctuary to their kids and then suddenly you've broken a cycle I was told to ask you topics that you're passionate about kinship being one of them yeah I think you know spiritually speaking I think kinship is God's dream come true you know that we be one that there be no daylight that separates us there's no us and them there's just us so that's the idea that's the hope around here so what happens, you know, it's just in a micro level here, you know, rival enemy gang members working side by side with each other. Well, we always want that to be some 
announcement of a new way of imagining, you know. You know, here we talk about kind of a mystical fluency, you know. There's a mysticism here, which is, and that's, our, I think, our core competency. We're a place that sees the wholeness of people. And, you know, a lot of places don't. You know, I, I had a homie who uh, was Russian, and I went to testify. They were going to try to deport him to Uzbekistan. They ended up not doing it. But he grew up in a Latino gang turf, and he got into a gang. So when I came back to the office after testifying, I asked a guy who I knew was from his gang. I said, do you know this guy? And he goes, oh, gosh, of course, we call him Russian boy. And, oh, I, I love that guy, he said. In fact, we were cellies at county jail, and he'd go out to the hall, this homie was telling me, and he'd get on the payphone and he'd talk to his mom, and they spoke Russian. And then he said, damn, gee, they spoke the whole language, <laughs> which I loved as an idea. In fact, that's the name of my third book I haven't written yet, but that's the name of it. And it's called The Whole Language, The Power of Extravagant Tenderness. And so... The idea is about the whole language is, what if we spoke the whole language? What if we were fluent in tenderness? That the whole language is about being tender and about seeing people in their wholeness rather than just looking at their rap sheet or fixating on the worst things they've ever done. But if you see the person in their totality, that's the whole language. That's what you hope for, is that kind of mystical fluency. I was also told to ask you about complex trauma. Yeah, I mean, we would call this place a trauma-informed place. You know, there's the ACEs, which is the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, and there's a, a scale of 1 to 10. So, you know, experts will say if a kid or a adult or anybody, you know, checks off four to five of that ten list. A parent was in prison, violence in the home, mental illness in the home, sexual abuse, physical abuse, it's a list of ten. So they say if you're a four or five, that's kind of alarming, that you're, you're going to have a hard time socializing, and you will have actual physical health issues. Everyone who walks through these doors is a nine or ten on the ACEs. Wow. Every single one. Now, I grew up in this city. I'm a zero on the aces. I can't check off any one of those ten things. Not one. And so, what does that mean? And what does that say? You know, that's not a, making me morally superior to the thousands who walk through our doors. Quite the opposite. It's just kind of... Uh, Random, You know, I, I won the lottery, uh, the zip code lottery, the parent lottery, the mental health lottery. You know, the list is long. And then there are uh, folks here who have just had to carry way more than anybody else. And once you know that, then that's a game changer. Once you know that, that's kind of, uh, you know, how things just alter forever. What do you see for yourself in the future? Again, you're out there teaching other communities on how to create and build similar type missions and organizations. Yeah, I mean, we have the Global Homeboy Network, so we have 146 programs modeled on this 
model and on our program, and then 16 outside the country uh, modeled on Homeboy. So, you know, we foster that, we nurture that, we gather every year, every August for three days to share about it. And uh, so I give a lot of talks because I feel like the message is an important one. And, you know, you want people to embrace this, that little by little you make progress in kinship and connection. And, you know, the invitation is that everybody speak the whole language in the end. As we start to wrap things up, I want to read this. Uh, we imagine no one standing outside of the circle, moving ourselves closer to the margins so that the margins themselves be erased. Something that you said, and that's your purpose, that's your mission. Yeah, I think a lot of times we want to uh, focus on, you know, worthy goals like peace, justice, and equality. And yet the truth of those things is that you can't ever have peace, justice, or equality unless there's an undergirding sense of kinship that we belong to each other. Hmm. No matter how hard you try, you know, so that's peace, justice, and equality are byproducts of our kinship. So work for kinship, and you'll get those things. And that's how it works, I think, you know. To wrap things up, do you have a final message for the thousands of people who get to listen to this to learn more about you and learn more about the mission that you have? Well, you know, I think going to the margins is you don't do it because it's the harder thing or the better thing. You do it because it's a selfish thing. That's where the joy is, is at the margins. People don't know that. They think it's just somehow a grim duty. But that's where the joy is. So you want people to walk towards joy, because once they do, it changes their lives. I think when people go to the margins, what they discover is, wow, I had no idea. You know, this really is where the life is. But it's also where the margins get erased. If enough people stand out at them then they disappear and that's what you hope and uh, Pope Francis says that the only world worth building is a world that includes everyone and so I think that's true beautiful I can add nothing to that okay thank you thank you so much I appreciate it Hi everybody, Win Claybaugh here, continuing this wonderful message about Homeboy Industries, and I'm sitting here with Jose Arellano. How, how was my accent? That's, that's about right. Arellano. 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 Okay. Well, yeah, some people say Arellano. <laughs> Arellano is, I think, proper. Uh, I had the chance to interview Father Greg from Homeboy Industries, okay. and we got to hear a little bit his story. But you're the beneficiary of what Father Greg has created, which is why. I wanted to also interview you to give our audience an education on what Homeboy does, not just in the Los Angeles area, but worldwide, because yeah. there is a great outreach program. And all good ideas come with a story. All good causes happen because there was a story. People raise money for cancer because they lost a loved one to cancer. People raise money for a cause because they have a personal tie to that. You know, I lost a brother to suicide, so of course we started a nonprofit to address mental health and uh, suicide prevention, and you have a story, and that's what I want to get into is your story. But I want to tell our listeners a little bit 
more about who you are. Jose was born in Southern California, just east of Los Angeles. And I'm, I'm reading this. Growing up, he and his family moved around Los Angeles County a lot. You enjoyed and excelled in school and was placed in the gifted and talented education program at a very young age. Actually, I'm going to have you tell your story even better, but you were cycled in and out of juvenile hall and prison uh, until you heard about Homeboy Industries. And now you're actually the director of case management at Homeboy Industries, which we're going to talk a little bit more about. So let's just you know, get into your, your story here. To say that you were put into gifted programs in education at school, that's, that was a good start, Yeah. right? So just tell us a little bit more about that. I loved school growing up. Like, I just, I loved school. Um, even to this day, I'm always fascinated with learning new things. But back then, the reason why I loved school so much is because I hated being at home. So growing up, um, like, I was sharing a little bit. Uh, my family were all born in this country, grandparents, uh, mother. So I guess, you know, trying to, like, fit in with being Mexican-American but not Mexican-American because we didn't migrate from Mexico. We're actually Native American. And my ancestors go back to the original tribe of the Los Angeles Basin, which is called the Tungva, uh, also known as the Gabrielino tribe. Uh, my ancestors built the missions in Los Angeles. Hmm. But also, like, kind of, so growing up really poor and, and kind of being ashamed of being poor and being ashamed a little bit about my heritage, I wanted to fit in with the Mexican-American culture. And then having this name that I didn't identify with because I didn't know the man that had given me this name uh, so growing up I grew up and I didn't know my mom was my mom until I was about nine I thought she was my sister because my grandparents were raising me as their child um, but I was excited when I found out she was my mom because I looked up to her as an older sister and I loved the way she was she was bold courageous she was smart she was funny she was witty and so when I found out she was my mom I was just like I, I was happy you know, I was excited about life. And she was a young gang member. And so, uh, you know, that relationship from the beginning was rocky just because she was a young gang member trying to figure out life. Uh, you know, she was looking for love in all the wrong places. And then she fell in love and she had another child, which was my sister. And, you know, it was like the same story over and over again. These men that she would meet would eventually leave us. Or they would stick around, and it wasn't always as healthy as it should have been. So, What does that mean that she grew up in gang life? So what, what did that look like for your mother? At what age was she a part of a so gang I, life? I don't know the age. I think maybe she got jumped into, from the stories I heard, like when she was around 15 or 16. My grandparents, so we're generational gang involved. My grandparents were from the original neighborhood, and then my mother eventually came up under them. And, and just they, we've just been gang involved since, you know, that from the stories I heard since my grandparents. And them not particularly being from a gang, but growing up in that culture. And then my mom actually being officially jumped into a gang. What does it mean to be jumped into a gang? Um, so you get beat up, you get beat down. If you get jumped into like a hardcore gang, like a real gang... The beating is, is pretty brutal. Um, and then after that, you get hugged and embraced and welcomed to be a part of this, this kind of twisted idea of love, you know. Mm -hmm. And I'll share my experience with it as, as I kind of get into my story. But mm -hmm. so growing up, I looked up to my mom and kind of wanted to follow her, you know. I wanted to just be with her, to be honest. I just wanted to be in the presence of her. Mm -hmm. 
but she was caught up in other things. And so eventually she got, you know, addicted to drugs. She started dibbling and dabbling at first. But now that I look back, like, she was in so much pain too, you know what I mean, that I guess she kind of succumbed to the addiction of drugs. And so the more she became addicted to drugs, the more poor we got. My grandfather eventually passed away. I was about 12 years old, and then we lost the house that he had bought. So we ended up, I ended up being raised by my grandmother and my mother at times whenever she was there. But pretty much we were on our own. You know, there wasn't a male that really was around to help out in any way, not even financially. So we became really poor. We started to move a lot. And I had an older cousin, and he was like a brother to me. His circumstances were similar as well. But he was wise beyond his years. He was just very special, amazing, gifted as well. And one day we go to my grandmother's backyard and he tells me, uh, he goes, look, it, like no matter what happens, we're not going to get jumped into the gang. We're not going to get in. We're like about 11 years old. And he asks me to shake and promise him that no matter how hard it gets, we're never going to get in. We grew up fast, so we kind of understood what was happening around us. I shook his hand, and we promised each other that no matter what happened, we would never get jumped into You were the, the same boat. age? He was a li- like about a year and a half older than me. Okay. And so um, we ended up moving around a lot. We started to move. And my cousin, the summer right before junior high school, my cousin got jumped into the hood out of nowhere. He didn't come and talk to me about it. Uh, we didn't have a conversation about it. It was just from one day to the next, he was jumped into the hood. A decision, a choice he made. A, a choice he made. Okay. And it changed things, you know. It changed our relationship. He was, now he's in the hood, he's in the streets. Um, he would come to my house sometimes late at night on his bike. But he was pretty much a gang member now, and that was it. That was the choices he made. But I had another friend that lived down the street from me. So by this time, my mom was like full-blown in her addiction. I didn't have a curfew growing up, so I never had to worry about what time I had to be home. I could be out until whatever time I wanted to. And like I told you, I hated being home. And that's why I loved school so much during this time, because being somewhere else besides being at home was like peace for me. Because at home was so chaotic, like alcoholism. The uncles I did have were cycling in and out of the system, were either in jail or getting out of jail, on drugs, very violent. The people that my mom was bringing to the house, my house was the hangout spot, and I hated being there. Did you have a younger sister there as well? I did. I had By this time, I had... Uh, two younger sisters and two younger brothers. There was five of us in total. And at times my mom would try to make things work with my younger brother's dad. So she wouldn't even live with us during that time. During the time of the summer right before junior high school, they had kind of left and kind of started a little family with my younger brother's dad. So they were gone. And I'm at the house with my grandmother, coming in and out of the house, just doing pretty much whatever I wanted. I didn't have anybody really looking after me. So I used to go to my friend Christian's house who lived down the street. And because I didn't have a curfew, I used to overstay my welcome. So I'd stay there until 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night. And his mom used to always have to ask me to leave. Like, hey, Jose, it's, it's getting late. You know, you guys got school in the morning. It'd be on a weekday, and I'd be there till 12 if I could. And so she would have to ask me to leave. And, uh, you know, I never really felt bad about that. I would just leave. Like, when she would ask me, I would leave. This is around the time, like, in the 90s where methamphetamine had become kind of like like a plague in my neighborhood, you know, in places I was growing up in, and a lot of people were getting hooked on it. And my mother had eventually tried it and got hooked on it, and so um, things were bad at the house, you know, things were bad. 
And so I go to Christian's house, and I go and I knock at the door. And uh, somebody comes at the peephole, but they didn't answer. So I go to the side window, and I knock at the side window. And I say, hey, it's me, Jose. And they turned off the living room light, and then they turned off the TV. And they pretended like nobody was home. And I remember, like, just thinking, like, damn. Like, they don't want me here. You know, they don't want me here. And I didn't want to go home. Like, I hated it at my house. By this time, a lot of things I didn't understand were starting to build in me. Like, resentments towards my mom. Resentments towards us being so poor in my life, you know. And so I left with my head down. And I, I walked back up to the top of the hill. And mostly all of my family were all from the same gang. Cousins, uncles. So I get to the top of the hill, and another one of my cousins is there. And he's about 16 at the time. And there's another homie there who's about 19. And I guess I had sadness on my face because the homie, he asks me, he goes, Hey, uh, why you look so sad? Did your dog die or something? And I try to maintain my composure, and I say, uh, I'm not sad. You know, I'm all right. And he, I remember he looks at me, and he says, uh, You want to get jumped into the hood? And I, before I could even realize that the words had left my mouth, I had said, yeah. And you were how old? I was 12. Oh. And I said, I'll get in tonight. And silence. And I remember my cousin, who was 16, giving me this look of like, I wouldn't say it was concern, but it was like this look of understanding that I had reached this, this point in my life, that it was going to happen, you know, that he had probably came across himself. Like this look of like deep understanding. And we didn't say anything to each other. We walked across the street where my other cousin had lived and we went into her garage and they just started beating on me. They started punching on me. I fell on the ground, they started kicking me. I got back up, they punched on me some more, kicked me. And then after they hugged me. How long did that last, the beating? That's 13 seconds. Okay. And after they had beat on me, they hugged me and they embraced me and they told me that they loved me. And it was this, I look back on it now, and it was this tainted, fissured, fractured idea of love. But for whatever reason, in that moment, I felt like, yeah, this is where I'm supposed to be at right now. And my cousin, who was 16, he goes into the house, and he comes out with a pair of pants. And these pants, uh, they were Ben Davis, and they were permanently creased, and they were pants that gangsters used to wear back then. And I remember he hands me the pants, and he says, try these on. And I put them on. They were big. They were like three times my size. And I put them on, and he looks at me. He says, man, those look good on you. He says, you can use those pants. And I felt like like a little warmth in my heart. I felt like, damn, this fool cares about me, you know? And then after he looks at me for a little while, and he says, you know what, homie, you can have those pants. And then I felt in that moment like that I was something, you know, that I was somebody to somebody. And that I became a gang member. And that decision changed the course of my life. How did your life change after that? Uh, school was out for me. It was pretty much, I started school with those pants. And I started school being from a gang. And growing up in the 90s, there was just so many different gangs at war with each other. Walking to school was a danger to my life. Walking home from school was a threat to my life. Um, I got jumped, like, right off the bat going to school. Walking home from school, I got jumped pretty bad. But the biggest thing that happened was eight months after I got jumped into my neighborhood, uh, my cousin Marlo, uh, who we promised each other in the backyard that we would never get jumped into the gang, 
Uh, he was shot in the face with a 12-gauge shotgun. He was murdered. He was 14 years old when he died. That was an experience that really, like, shifted my perception on life. And, uh, like, I loved him dearly, you know, like a brother. So my son Vincent has his name now. So my son's name is Vincent Marlowe. And I gave him that name in honor of my cousin Marlowe, who was murdered. Um, because I just think that he was an amazing human being and he would have done great things had he been given the opportunity. So these experiences, they started to shape me. They started to shape the way I saw the world and ultimately the way I saw myself in the world. So, you know, I thought life was a dangerous place to be. And, um, you know, I just started to learn things like, okay, this is what a gang member does. This is how we live. I remember being at his uh, car wash. We did a car wash because we couldn't afford his funeral. And you couldn't say that you were sad. Like, you couldn't talk about, like, I knew him as a, as a kid, as, like, a, a brother, as a cousin. But they knew him as a gang member, you know, and retaliation was talked about. And I remember, like, being at the car wash and going, like, I remember we used to bury, like, army men in the dirt outside my grandmother's house, you know. And things like that I missed about him. But those things weren't shared with anybody because we were gang members and we weren't supposed to talk like that and we weren't supposed to talk about those things. We were supposed to be hard and we were supposed to be tough and we weren't supposed to cry. Mm. And so what's a trip is this. So years later, I mean, I want to say maybe like two or three years ago, I was in this writing workshop class at Homeboy and they asked us to write a story from our childhood. And I wrote a story about Marlo. This just came out of nowhere. I, I had forgotten about this. I wrote that when, after he had died, I used to go into my grandmother's yard and I used to look for the army man we had buried and I couldn't find him. Mm. But I never shared that with anybody because I was a gang member already. I just kept it to myself. Like I would go into my grandma's yard and I would look for these army men. And that didn't come up for me until years later, decades later, you know, and it was in a writing workshop at Homeboys. But these things I had begun to bury you know, this pain, like the absence of not having a father, the stuff I was struggling with with my mother, I started to bury them deep within. And uh, and I started to put this mask on, you know, and I started to tighten the mask. And I learned from those around me on how to talk, how to walk, how to conduct myself because I didn't want to be hurt. But the whole time I was creating a character that was going to eventually hurt me the most. And so I got locked up at 15 for what? Out, for selling drugs. Okay. I uh, got out four months later, and then I got locked up again at 16 uh, for a gang-related incident, and I didn't get out till I was 18. Um, got out at 18 and went to prison at 18. Got out when I was 22. Um, got out for five months at 22. Went right back to prison for another six years. I had lost myself completely. Didn't know who I was. I was this character I had created. I was this gang member. I was this, this person that lived like this and that. Nothing hurt him and nothing bothered him. This was my life. You know, I remember being in juvenile hall and so my mom couldn't visit me back then because she was in her addiction. And you know, kids were getting visits. They would call them their names out and I'd be in my cell. And I remember saying to myself, like pushing everything, burying it deep, saying, this is your life, homie. Like this is the hand you were down and we're gonna live this out. We're going to live this hand until you die. And hopefully death comes soon. And I begin to pursue death. So you, between juvenile and prison, you spent a total of how many years? Over a decade. Over a decade. Yeah. Okay. 
the last two back to back being like the longest stretch, where it was four years and six years back to back, with I, think, I would say almost five months in between those two terms. Wow. But this is where like my story changes, and it, it came from one of my darkest moments. So the relationship with my mom became so estranged. Like, I remember homies used to tell me, like, hey, your mom's over here, and she's getting high. You should probably come check on her. And I would look at them, and I would say, I don't have a mom, homie. I don't have a mother. I was so hurt by her. It was an experience, once again, going back to, like, I believe that our experiences, they shape us, and they shape the way we see ourselves. And I remember uh, I started to get high with my mom, and... Wherever we were at, it became like the gang hangout. Any place we lived became the hood spot. And so I remember she was asking people to try meth. And like a lot of younger homies were in there. And I remember her coming out with it. And I was looking at her like, ask me, like pick me. You know, like I want to be a part of your life, you know. And she like skipped me and asked everybody else to try it. And I had an older homegirl there. And I remember like tapping her going like, hey, like tell her like I'll try it how old were you I was 14 and she was like you tell her like tell her and I told her and I said hey I'll try that she's like all right you want to try this and I was like I'll try it and I remember trying it and like for three days I was up on meth and for whatever reason it didn't click well with me and so like three days later I remember feeling so bad that I had done it and I went back to that same homegrown and I told her, hey, like, I don't want to do this no more. And I don't want my mom to do this drug no more. And I was like, would you talk to her for me? And she's like, you talk to her. She's your mom. If you tell her how you feel, I'm pretty sure she'll stop. And I remember going to my mom and saying, like, uh, hey, I don't like the way this made me feel. And I don't want any of us to use this anymore. And my mom looked at me and she said, you're weak-minded. And she, like, pretty much announced to the whole house, like, he can't use meth no more because he can't handle it. And I remember feeling, like, so hurt inside by her. I never, ever came to her again with anything that I had felt. And I remember from that day on, I never called her mom again. And um, that was our relationship until she passed away. So I go to prison with this feeling of this is my life and nothing's going to hurt me anymore just kind of shut down and disconnected from the world. And I had just got to Lancaster State Prison, and then I had got word that my mom had died. And How I remember, old was she? She was in her 40s. Died of addiction? Um, she died in her addiction somehow. I think she had caught pneumonia or something. But um, I remember feeling so hurt, like broken. Like I just wanted her, you know. And I would try to stuff it down because I was in prison and I had like by this time, I probably had, like, four more years to do. And I was like, nope, I can't feel that. Like, whatever that is, it has to go back down deep within. And I couldn't. It just kept coming up again. And there was nothing I can do. I was getting high in there. I was drinking Pruno in there. I was going to the hole. I was fighting. There was nothing I can do that was going to suppress this pain anymore. And uh, I just hurt so bad. Like, I just wanted her, you know. And then I had started to think, like, how did I get here to this place? I remember my last shoot term, I was in the hole, and there's these little tiny mirrors in the cell. And I remember looking at myself in the mirror, and I was all tatted up, my face, my arms, I was sleeved down at the time. And I remember looking at myself, and then I look at my reflection in the mirror, and I, 
and I go, who are you? Like, who are you, and how'd you get to this place? How'd you get to this moment in life? And I started to think about my childhood. I started to go back. And I remember being a little boy, uh, there was a show that used to come on, it was called Family Matters. And I used to watch that show when I was a little boy. And I used to yearn to have what they had on the screen. I used to yearn for a father and a mother like that. And I was broken and I was lost and I didn't want to die like that. So I started to pray and I started to think about like what life could have been like. And I remember being in the hole and I was praying and I was saying, um, if there's anything else, like, if there's anything besides this, like, give me a glimpse of it. And I'll promise you I'll change my life. I'll do something else. And, um, you know, you hear stories in there about all kinds of things. You don't believe everything you hear and you believe half of what you see. But I had heard a story about Father G briefly on the yard one day at the weight pile. And this homie from East L.A. was talking about this priest that had uh, helped him get a backpack and bought him some shoes for school and stuff. And you kind of hear these stories and you go, I never met a priest like that, yeah. you know. But they stuck with me. And I had uh, met a beautiful woman, uh, amazing woman, while I was incarcerated. And we eventually got married and, um, and I paroled with her. And I remember coming home, like, dealing with so many things, you know, that I didn't understand back then. I didn't understand at all what I was feeling inside. And I remember being, like, in the supermarket and getting into an argument with her because I didn't, you know, where you have to pull the number, the tag, to wait for the meat, the fresh meat? I used to say, why do you want to wait for this fresh meat? Like, why don't we just get it with the packaged meat and let's leave? Is because I wasn't comfortable in the store, but I never wanted to tell her that. Mm. So I, I figured, like, if I just work and get a job, I'll be okay, you know, and I won't go back to prison. And so I started to do that. I started working in factories in, like, Vernon and Huntington Park. And my father-in-law, he would come into the house, and he would see me all dirty. And one day he had a Spanish paper. It was called La Opinion, and there was an ad of Homeboy Industries in there. And he hands it to me, and, his, and we couldn't really communicate because of my English and his Spanish, but he was like... You should call them. Try calling them. And I was like, you know what? I had heard about this a long time ago. And I called. I said, you know what? I'll call. And I call, and a homie named Eddie answered the phone. And he says, hey, this is Eddie with Homeboy Industries. How can I help you? And I go, oh, well, I'm looking for a job. Are you guys hiring over there? He says, well, let me ask you a few questions. I go, all right. He says, uh, have you ever been locked up before? I'm like, yeah, it's kind of strange question, you know. Right. And I'm like, I'm like, yeah, not not, not a typical, yeah, uh, not your typical interview, interview question, right? And I said, uh, yeah, I've been locked up before. And he says, uh, you ever been involved in gangs? And I'm like, yeah, I'm from a gang. And uh, he goes, are you on probation or parole? And I don't know why, but I told him, I go, actually, I'm on high control parole. And he goes, all right. He goes, uh, I got one more question for you. Do you have any visible tattoos? And I remember looking at myself, and like I said, sleeved up, tatted up, my neck's tatted everything. And I said, yeah, I'm all tatted up, homie. And he goes, well, yeah, we'll give you a job. <laughs> and I remember, I remember getting the phone and holding it away from my ear going, 
did he just say what I thought he said? And I go, what would you say? And he said, yeah, we'll give you a job. Can you come down here today? And I was like, are you serious, homie? He's all, I'm serious. We'll give you a job. I said, I'll be down there today. And I remember walking up to Homeboy Industries. And you've been there, so big windows. You can see it. And as soon as you get there, you can immediately see inside. And I remember seeing gang members everywhere. And I looked at my wife. We clown about it today. I looked at her, and serious as a heart attack, I said, this place is not for me. I was so afraid to be around other gang members. And I didn't even know that I was afraid. I was so afraid that something bad was going to happen because that's all that happened in my life was something bad. I was waiting for the next shoe to drop. And she goes, just give it a shot. Just go in there. Just just see what they say. And I was like, all right. And uh, I walk in and I get the intake form. And I remember sitting down and I'm sitting up straight and I'm watching everybody start to see people notice me. And I'm going through all these things in my system and my mind. And I remember, you've been to the cafe, right? Mm-hmm. So do you know Mario? Mario, he's all tatted in the cafe. He has the most tattoos. Right. Yeah, he has the most tattoos I've ever seen anybody have in my life. He even has his eyelids tatted. So back then, years ago, he was a trainee. Well, they didn't call us trainees back then. We were junior staff. He was junior staff, and he was on maintenance. So he was walking around with like a mop bucket or something. And I noticed him notice me, and that's all it took. And I remember noticing him notice me, and he starts to walk towards me. And I put the clipboard down. And inside, I'm thinking, well, here it is. Everything I expected to happen is going to happen now. And the closer he gets to me, the more my heart begins to race. And then he walks up and he extends his hand to me. And he says, hey, my name's Mario. I've never seen you here before. Would you like some water or something to drink? And I remember looking at him going, what are you talking about? I had never been approached by a gang member and had an experience like that. What did you think was going to happen? I thought he was going to say, where are you from, homie? Or I know you from somewhere. And it was going to be immediately a collision. And he didn't. He said, I've never seen you here before. Would you like something to drink? Would you like water? And that experience and many other experiences, they began to reshape the way that I saw things. They began to change me. And I didn't even know I was being changed. I'll share this other uh, experience with you. So I, I, I start working there. I get a job there. And people are telling me they love me. And they're saying, hey, I can't wait to see you tomorrow. And I'm leaving going, yeah, 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 right. Like, I'm, I'm waiting to see the holes in this place. I'm watching. I'm watching, expecting to see that this is all just BS. You know, that how can you love me? I remember there was a homie that used to always tell me, hey, I love you. And in my mind, I used to say, how can you love me, homie? And my mother never loved me. I couldn't understand it. And so I was always leery. I was always vigilant. And I would leave. And so anyway, I ended up going to my grandmother's. And I got my little brother. He was my baby brother. And he was about 14 when my mom had died. So he ended up really having to fend for himself. And I, I talked to Father G. And I said, hey, G, I, I located my brother. Do you think we, I can bring him? And he said, sure, son. We'll get him enrolled in our school, and we'll give him a part-time job. He can work here part-time. He can go to school part-time. I was so happy. So I bring my brother, and my brother back then, he didn't speak. The only way he really knew how to express himself was physically and violently. I didn't know why until years later why he didn't really talk. 
and so he was just quiet and you know I used to always try to watch out for him and uh, one day we come into homeboys and the homie Eddie that had answered my call was at the front desk and he says hey father G wants to talk to you guys I remember looking at my brother going like what did you do homie <laughs> you know <laughs> and we're waiting in front of G's office and then he calls us in and we sit down and uh see back then we didn't really have much and and we used to share clothes but see people at homeboys they would see you they would notice those things and they would always try to help but we were raised up to not accept anything from nobody because if you accepted it they could possibly want something from you in return so i used to always tell my brother don't take nothing from nobody you know just we got each other we'll take care of each other I was a lot thinner back then. I was like 60 pounds thinner. So if I had this shirt on today, my brother would wear it tomorrow. And if whatever pants he had on, we would swap out and we would wear each other's clothes. But people there would notice that. So here we are in front of G's office and he calls us in and we sit down in front of his desk and he has these two Sears cards and he reaches across his desk and he tries to hand them to us and we go, oh no, we're good, homie. We don't need anything. He says, take this card, son. And we're like, we're all right. For real, we're good. He goes, take these cards and go buy your guys yourself some clothes. He forces us to take these cards. And we take them. And we're leaving and we're going down Alameda. And I look over at my little brother. And my little brother is sobbing. He's in tears. And when we were growing up, I used to always tell him, don't cry. Don't ever cry in front of anybody because it'll show weakness. And it'll take advantage of you. And here we are going down Alameda and he's sobbing uncontrollably. And I look over at him and I go, why are you crying, homie? And he goes, he looks at me and he goes, why do they care about us? He couldn't wrap his head around it. And I remember looking at him in that moment and I go, you're special and you're worthy. They care about you because you're a good dude. And I remember something shifted in me. And I was like, this is real. This is real. There's something special here, and I want to be a part of it, even though everything inside of me is telling me not to. I want that. I, I want to be able to tell my brother that he's special and that he's worthy and that I love him and that he deserves it. And that was like a major shift in me. When I came back, I was like, I want to be a part of this place. And no matter how comfortable it feels, allowing somebody to tell me they love me, allowing somebody to help me, like I'm going to do it. Because eventually I wanted to do that for somebody else. And my life started to change when, dramatically, I started to allow people in. I started to tell people about things that had happened. And I started to heal from that pain. Then I started to realize that if I had went through all this and made these decisions in my life, imagine what my mom had went through. Imagine the things she was carrying. And I started to forgive her. And I started to connect to her in ways I could never have imagined in life. I share this with people and I say, uh, as crazy as it sounds, my mother was able to give me in death what she wasn't able to give me in life. If my mom would have never died, I would have never had a chance at living. I would have never known that pain. And it sounds crazy. It might sound crazy to somebody to say that, but... What she wasn't able to give me in life, she was able to give me in death. And I found all that out at Homeboys. Because when I came there, it wasn't about me changing. 
It was about me being everything I was already created to be. It was about me removing these layers, these ideas of who I thought I needed to be so that I wouldn't feel pain. It was about understanding why I had made this decision to get jumped into a game and forgiving myself for that decision. It was about saying I was hurt because my cousin was murdered and I yearned for him and him being in my life. It was about saying I needed a father growing up and being able to own that and articulate that. Those things that I was able to do at Homeboys, they liberated me and they gave me freedom to be who I was always destined to be, which is a person that I really like. I love people. I still enjoy learning new things. And um, I just, I love being able to help. I love being able to connect people to resources. And and um, I love being a part of Homeboys. Like, I feel like everything in my life makes sense. Like, every, like I wouldn't change anything. I wouldn't go back and try to rearrange anything. I feel like I'm living a life beyond my wildest dream. That everything I had been through has led me to this moment in time. Unbelievable. So you completed this program and made a decision that you needed to stay. Yeah. I didn't even know I was going to stay, to be honest. I thought I was going to be like a construction worker or something. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Father G just... I guess he just always seen something in me and others there too. Okay? I can't just say Father G. I, I owe like my journey to so many people. There's just so many people that have shaped me and have believed in me and uplifted me. So I started, I did maintenance and I just was so grateful to have an opportunity. And I, I always tell the homies that I work with now, I said, man, I used to tell people on our tours, be careful because you might run into one of these windows because they're so clean because I took so much pride in wow. cleaning these windows. And uh, I used to tell our tours, I used to say, we got the cleanest restrooms in all of Los Angeles because I used to take so much pride in cleaning the restrooms. I just love, I just love being a part of Homeboy. Um, and then so I went from maintenance, which like, you know, cleaning restrooms to passing out supplies. And uh, I was doing the supplies for a while. And then they asked me to be a part of security. And then I went from security to employment services. Is that when you gained the 60 pounds? That's when I gained the 60 pounds. No, when I went to the bakery is when (laughs) I gained the 60 pounds. Oh, my gosh, that'll do it. (laughs) They should do bakery first to put on the weight so you look a little. And then security. After then security, right? But, yeah, I went through the bakery for a bit. I gained 60 pounds at the bakery last week. In one day, huh? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) So good. Uh Uh-huh. What, what do you see for yourself and the contribution that you make? Because some of the things that you said, like I led, led the story when you said you you noticed him noticing you. Do, is that something that you've changed a lot? Like I, I know when you and I met, and there were several other people that I was with that you met at the same time. I just you were you weren't oh hi hey how you doing? You were like real intense on making eye contact and yeah. so that there was a connection there. G um. I wasn't able to articulate everything, but G uh, has said something a while back. He says, we receive the tender glance of God, and then we be the tender glance of God in the world. So I didn't know that's what it was, but I now I, I, I want to be somebody that notices somebody else. Hmm. I want to be eyes that see, you know, and I want to be ears that hear. And I, I could do less talking because I talk a lot already, but I want to be uh, arms that receive. Mm. And I want to be like an extension cord and connect people to people. 
So being fortunate to be in this role now where I get to oversee these teams that pretty much oversee the A-team of the program, we always say we connect people to people first and then people to resource. Because coming through these experiences, coming up through these experiences and lifestyles, it's hard to allow yourself to connect to a resources when you haven't even connected to a person in a healthy way. So I do, I really do want to be that tender glance. I want to see people. Like I have just amazing, amazing experiences with people by being able to see them, you know, and not what they do, but who they are already. And that's one of the things about homeboys that I learned so much about is that Coming through homeboys, like all these big windows and us seeing each other and greeting each other wasn't meant to watch each other. It was meant to see each other Mm. and to see that we've always been worthy. All of us have been worthy. We were born worthy. It just, things happen in life. But for us to see people for who they are is, is I think, truly one of the biggest gifts. A lot of the stuff that you're talking about is stuff that is applicable, not just for someone who uh, grew up in gangs and served time in prison and therefore has special needs um it's people working in corporations and that's where i come from there are people who don't have anything near the type of story that you're sharing um but there's still need for recovery there's still need for being noticed there's still need for overcoming childhood trauma and now they're working in corporations that aren't noticing them i mean i want to bring that message to the for-profit world that in every organization, in every company, these exact same stories exist. And one of my mentors, Marianne Williamson, used to say that she feels that every business is a front for a church. And what she meant by that has nothing to do with a religion. It's that every place is a place where people can feel safe, especially the work environment. Uh, that's the goal that I've created for my company, and I know that we miss the mark a lot, but I want to bring the world of nonprofit and the things that you have learned into the corporate world, into the business space. Um, one of my favorite jokes is this guy dies and he's going to heaven, and so he's at the gates and he's being judged. And he's like, I'm so sorry, I tried to get into that church, they wouldn't let me in. And God responds and said, Well, I've been trying to get into that church myself, they won't let yeah. me in either. <laughs> No, it's it's special. When you walked out of the room earlier, uh, I looked over and I said, you give me really good vibes. And it's, you're welcoming, you're receiving it. I think that's one of our greatest gifts because that's the gift that really does keep on giving when we allow ourselves to be reached by people. Mm -hmm. Instead of coming with our own ideas of how we think people should move or act. Mm -hmm. When we allow ourselves to be reached by people, it liberates our own self. And so I do it selfishly, I think, too, for me to be free from these ideas that I can so easily attach myself to. Even as a director, I'm a director, I'm a management team, and I oversee this and I oversee that. What comes with all that? What kind of ideas? But when I allow myself to be reached by my team and to really see them like, this is a father, this is a mother, this is a sister, this is a brother, this is a person that's been through some things, you know, it, it frees me. It unchains all of us. It liberates us all. It frees me from the ideas I have about you, and it frees myself from the ideas I have about myself and how I need to be with you. Mm. And so I do it also, like, and I didn't realize this until later, that it was for me. Mm. You know, I wasn't so chained to what I thought I needed to be or who I think I need to show up as. 
and I could just be, you know, and allow others to just be. And I love Marianne Williamson hmm. so Good much. Lady. Yeah. So you're a dad. I'm a dad. Yes. One child. Five. Ch- five. Five childs. Five children. Yeah. Oh my gosh, five. I'm so blessed hmm. beyond measure. I look at my children, and they will never know what it was like. You know, they will never know what it was like. And that right there, no matter what kind of day I'm having, that right there alone, mm-hmm. like nothing can touch that. A final message for our listeners? I would say that know that you are worthy, despite of anything you've been through or anything that anybody has said. Know that you exactly who you are. You are worthy and that you're exactly what God had in mind when God created you. And and when you inhabit that truth, you invite others to do the same. And you're worthy no matter what. Hmm. Dang. You just took me on a roller coaster. <laughs> just took me on a roller coaster. <laughs> Thank you so much. This is amazing. Thank you. I'm so grateful. Really nice. You are you're amazing. Like you made me feel real comfortable. I was telling Lisa, I was like, I don't know, I didn't know what to expect. Mm-hmm. You're, you're a really great person. Thanks, man. Yeah.